We remember his scourging. We remember his back laid bare, his flesh torn and ripped off. Not a sanitized image that we sometimes see in, in some artworks. He would have screamed and cried. His body was shaken and his knees had grown weak. He'd never, he'd have felt fear and his endurance would have been surely tested. He was mocked, he was spat on and punched and then led out to the place of crucifixion. Losing blood, he was no doubt dehydrated, nauseated, tired and in a lot of pain. He climbed a hill, being taunted all the way. And when he laid down, he was nailed to that wooden cross and crucified. More screams, more tears, more fear. And now picture his family sobbing at the foot of the cross and his disciples who've lost all hope as they see soldiers casting lots for his clothes. And then the wider following of people who have turned on him because he didn't deliver what they were expecting. They wanted a Messiah who would deliver them from Rome, not deliver them from their sin. So much sorrow and disappointment when hopes had been so high. The crucifixion happened. That is not fake news. It really happened. Jesus did exist and walk this earth. And among all the claims about who he was, we must face up to some kind of acknowledgement of him. History tells us that he existed. Even among secular historians, they tell us that he existed and suffered an execution. The Roman historian and senator by the name of Tacitus referred to Jesus in one of his writings and talked about the, early, um, about the execution by Pontius Pilate and the existence of early Christians in Rome. Another historian, Flavius Josephus, wrote about Jesus, and this is a quote that he said, Now there was a time, there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men, as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. Now, Josephus', Josephus comment there that questions whether it be lawful to call him a man raises the point that Josephus saw something in Jesus that was extraordinary, more than manlike. We think of the cross and we see a symbol of it all over the place. We see it on buildings, on logos and crests, on letterheads, flags and in jewellery. You probably recognise a few of them there. Many who do not acknowledge or follow Jesus in a small way are bearing witness to his execution, his crucifixion, when they wear those symbols. Because we see it so often, have we in some ways lost the true essence of the cross, the image of crucifixion? Have we lost some of the repulsion of this form of torture which Jesus endured? While the cross is a reminder of salvation, 
It's also a reminder of suffering and shame. The Romans, they were known for their inventiveness and ingenuity in devising the most tortuous ways that would inflict pain and prolong suffering. What kind of people would spend their time dreaming that sort of stuff up? Such cruelty. You know, in this world that we live in today, there is so much to be offended by. Maybe not getting the egg you wanted for Easter. I wanted a cream egg, and you gave me a hollow one. I mean, at least you could have given me one with marshmallow. What you gave me has got 90% air. Maybe not enough likes on your social media. If you've ever watched the film The Social Dilemma, there's an interview with a guy who's a former employee at Facebook. And he was part of the team that came together to design the like button, you know, the thumb up. The whole reason behind it was encouragement. They wanted to find a way that was simple and easy for people to go, ah, awesome, I like that, encourage. He said what we've found is people have become so deeply mentally and emotionally distressed because they didn't get enough likes on a post. There's a fence to be taken everywhere. Even in this group of people, in this congregation, there are so many differences. The potential for offence is there. And while offence can be found everywhere, it pales in comparison to the offence of the cross. When people wear a cross, I suspect they often have little or no understanding of the deep offensiveness of it. The offensiveness of the fact that people would dream it up, that kind of torture, but also to inflict it on somebody else, on another human being. The cross was a means to torture someone to death over a long period of time. And those that saw people die by crucifixion would have heard screams, seen tears flowing, blood dripping, flies hovering, most likely also the smells of urine and feces as People lost control of their bladder and bowel in that process of torture. That is offensive. At the cross, people would gather to taunt and laugh, hurling emotional and mental mental abuse at the victim. Some gathered to cry and mourn. Some gathered to make gain, to profit off the vulnerability of others like a spectator sport. The use of the cross its offensiveness and cruelty was also a means to control the general population by instilling fear in the hearts of people should they ever think of opposing the occupying Roman force. I think if we could travel back in time to see the cross of crucifixion, I'm pretty sure our feelings would change. We use words to describe it as best we can, but if we saw it, if we smelt it, If we were present, I wonder how our view would change. The cross is in every way offensive, but the cross of Jesus more so. Why? Because we have to look at it as the way to salvation. You can't escape it. You cannot get past it. We have to look at it and acknowledge that as much as the Roman soldiers physically nailed him there, and as much as the Jewish leaders and the political people of the time begged for his blood and as much as the people cried for his crucifixion 
It was also each of us that put him there. Our sin put him there. Our sin is why he was on the cross. So we're as culpable as the people recorded in the story of his actual crucifixion. Jesus is the only way to salvation. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way. Not a way, the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you look at the law in the Old Testament, it requires that nearly everything had to be cleansed by blood. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That was modelled right from the beginning of Scripture. When Adam and Eve sinned, blood was shed. An animal lost its life so that its skin might be used for clothing, for the embarrassment of their nakedness. And the Passover in Egypt is another point where an animal lost its life in order that blood might be poured on the doorposts to, to save the family from the sting of death. And throughout Israel's history, the blood has been spilt in blood and animal sacrifice as a sign to God that the Jewish people were sorry for their sin and they understood the need for forgiveness. When you enter the Jewish tabernacle of the Old Testament, the first thing you would see is the altar of sacrifice, a raised up large cubic altar on which animals are being sacrificed and burnt. Do we have a picture of the tabernacle as a sterile, clean and pure place? The tabernacle had animals and the accompanying sacrificial smells, smoke, blood, most likely flies. Does that seem offensive? It should, because sin is offensive to God. The Jewish people understand, understood that to gain access to the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, via the priests, you needed death, you needed blood, you needed sacrifice. The problem with those sacrifices, however, was that it had to be done every year, repeated over and over. But Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. Once his was made, there was no need for all of those others anymore. So the cross stands in history as a sign of judgment to those who reject it, but as a sign of eternal life to those who accept. So if there is no other way, and there isn't, we have to make a decision. Accept or reject. Let's take a look at some of the responses that people made in the Bible, starting with Pilate. What say Pilate? Each of these people, I'm going to have some verses listed up. I won't read through all of the verses, I'll refer to them, but um, in case you're wanting to know where they've come from and check up on me. <laughs> what say Pilate? So the chief priests and elders made their plans against Jesus to put him to death. They put him in chains and they led him off and handed him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Jesus was first brought before Pontius Pilate for trial, since Pilate was the governor of Roman Judea, which encompassed Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was arrested. Pilate initially handed him over to Herod Antipas, in whose territory Jesus had been most active. But Antipas sent him straight back to Herod, to Pilate. Sorry. And Pilate's wife, if you recall, had a dream saying, don't do anything to this man, he's innocent. 
Pilate tries to avoid sentencing Jesus by uh, following a custom where they would release a prisoner at Passover, chosen by the people. And he suggested Jesus, but they chose Barabbas instead. And when he asks the crowd what crime Jesus has committed, they say, crucify him. Finally, Pilate washes his hands in a sign that Jesus' death is not his responsibility. He announces, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the Jewish people shouted in response, his blood be on us and our children. How ironic. His blood is on us. But it cleanses us. Throughout this trial, Pilate was convinced that Jesus was innocent. However, in protecting his position as governor, he had a guilty man released and Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He knew he was without sin. But he feared the crowd. He was bound in fear and swayed by public thinking. So when Pilate met Jesus, what did he do? He chose to submit to fear and condemn Jesus to death. What's say Herod? So Herod Antipas, he was the son of Herod the Great. He was a ruler of a minor part of the Roman Empire, which included Galilee, where Jesus ministered. Herod was a man who divorced his wife to marry Herodias, who was his half-brother's wife. He was living in sin, and when John the Baptist challenged him on it, Herod had John thrown in prison. And it was later Herod's daughter, through cunning, who had John the Baptist beheaded. When Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, Herod was initially pleased, because he'd heard about Jesus, and hoped to see Jesus perform a sign of some sort. But when Jesus gave no sign or answers to his questions, he got frustrated and sent him back. When Herod met Jesus, what did he do? He wanted to be entertained, but he wasn't interested in changing the way he lived. How about Caiaphas? What's a Caiaphas? So Caiaphas was the high priest who served in the temple. He had the unique privilege of entering the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, once a year on Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement. And that was to burn incense and sprinkle animal blood that had been sacrificed to deal with his own sins and the sins of the people of Israel. He was the religious leader chosen to stand before God in the Holy of Holies. He was the representative of the people, the intermediary between God and people. John 18, 12 to 14 says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who'd advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So Annas was the Jewish appointed high priest until Caiaphas was appointed by the Romans as a high priest. Annas held a lot of political and social clout, but Caiaphas had the endorsement of Rome behind him. Caiaphas was the religious elite Being the intermediary between God and the people, there was no higher he could climb on that religious ladder. As often happens, with great power 
comes the great temptation of pride. Religion can puff up someone's self, sense of self-importance. Imagine your job is to represent all of the people before God. The temptation to believe that as gatekeeper to the people's access to God and feel more important than any, anyone else, that temptation would have been massive. And Caiaphas would have been well trained in all areas of religion in order to achieve that position. And yet despite all his religious training and his studies of the prophets, he failed to see or acknowledge the fulfillment of prophecy happening right in front of his eyes. Instead, he chose the comfort of his religion rather than to truly investigate the possibility of who this man was. Jesus was the Son of God, prophesied in Scripture. Caiaphas, bound up with theology and pride, met Jesus. And what did he do? He chose religion and the power of an earthly empire over the kingdom that Jesus spoke of. What say the soldiers? Soldiers, they were strong, they were trained. They were a band of brothers, probably with a camaraderie and a sense of invincibility that came from knowing they were part of the greatest empire in the world, at that time anyway. They were doing a job and then they met Jesus. And what did they do? They spat on him and taunted him. At the cross, they gambled for his garments, choosing personal gain. Who is this upstart that thinks he's a king? Him and what army? Who is this man against the might of a Roman army, calls himself a king? Those soldiers chose their brotherhood, their friendship, and the physically earthly power over the power that Jesus was really talking about. They didn't need Jesus, because they could rely on their own strength. What say the centurion? He's in charge of the band of soldiers. But he wasn't swayed by them. And he wasn't swayed by their greed or the need to be part of a group. He was a leader. And he took in the moment when he met Jesus. He wondered and he pondered. He saw Jesus' courage, the way he died, and he considered him. Crucifixion a method of torture and painful death devised to be cruelly long and drawn out did not go to plan. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, and then gave up his life, that is not how crucifixion is supposed to go. It doesn't end that quickly. Jesus demonstrated that as much as it seemed like the Romans and the Jewish leaders were in control, it was in fact he who was in control. The centurion chose to acknowledge that surely this was the Son of God. What say the sinners on the cross? Both of them were thieves. One chose Jesus and one rejected him. When we look at the response Jesus had to the dying sinner on the cross, what did he say? He said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Had the sinner been baptized? Had he paid tithes? Had he done good works? None of those. He simply believed. I came across this recently. It says, How does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? No baptism, no communion, 
No confirmation, no speaking in tongues, no mission trip, no volunteering, no volunteerism, no church clothes. Couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He didn't say this in his prayer. And among other things, he was a thief. Jesus didn't take away his pain, heal his body, or smite the scoffers. Yet it was a thief who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus, simply by believing. He had nothing more to offer other than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. No spin from brilliant theologians, no ego or arrogance, no shiny lights, skinny jeans or crafty words. No haze machine, donuts or coffee at the entrance. Just a naked, dying man on a cross, unable to even fold his hands to pray. Those sinners were receiving punishment for crimes they committed when they met Jesus. And what did they do? Well, one of them mocked and the other believed. That day, the believing one spent his first day in eternity in heaven. No bells and whistles that are sometimes attached to what a Christian should or must do. Just belief. What say Felix? Now, Felix wasn't there at the time. Acts 24, verses 24 and 25. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. So Paul speaking to Felix is a way of Felix meeting Jesus. We physically can't meet Jesus either, either, but we can meet with him. So in that conversation when Felix met with Jesus, what did he do? He put Paul away and said, I'll talk to you another time that's more convenient. He chose comfort and personal peace over Jesus. Problem is that no time is convenient because a reason can always be found why not to choose Jesus. The guys in the band would like to come on up. So we now bring it back to the question, what say you? Romans 10.9 says, if you believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are saved. Nothing more, nothing less. So simple. But such a challenge when we often have this mindset that we have to fix all our problems. We have to get ourselves out of our mess. And while that may be true in some senses physically, there are situations we can get ourselves into and we have to work out of it, It's not true when it comes to the problem of spiritual separation from God. We cannot bridge that chasm. Only the cross of Jesus can. This Easter, the cross still stands. We cannot escape it. It's in our face. It's what we see. So when you meet Jesus, what will you do? Will you bow to the fear of what others might think or say about you? like Pilate? Will you demand a sign for your entertainment, like Herod? Will you lean on religious comfort and the power of earthly authorities, like Caiaphas? Will you rely on your own strength, like the soldiers, 
Will you delay making a decision for Jesus like Felix? Will you mock Jesus like one of the sinners on the cross? Or will you acknowledge Jesus like the centurion and the second sinner who both simply believed? What say you? This is what I say. I acknowledge my pride, my lust, my shame, my sin, my need to fit into a crowd, my need for money, my part and family breakdown. I am broken, a sinner. I'm made of dust. I'm unworthy. I'm a follower, swayed by the crowd. But I've met Jesus. And I confess with my mouth that Jesus is the only way to salvation. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And I believe that with all my heart, I am saved. What say you? free to stand if you wish. Above all, above all.